BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Wizard and the Bruiser and Page 7 are going back on the road this summer. That's right. Release the Butthole Cut Tour returns. Where are we going, Jake? Oh, you can find us in Salt Lake City, Denver, Las Vegas, Portland, Tacoma, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, and St. Louis, Missouri. LastPodcastNetwork.com for tickets. Go to LastPodcastNetwork.com for Page 7 and Wizard and the Bruiser present Release the Butthole Cut Tour. I am Bruiser. I am Bruiser. And look at me, y'all. I'm Mary Poppins. That's right. Yondu. Yondu Udanta, America's favorite character. <laughs> Definitely not. He's a shit-kicking space rebel with a heart of gold <laughs> and a jacked-up mouth. And don't worry, he's no longer a really cringy pastiche of, like, tribal Native American traits. Why would you Still go with that one? Still has a mohawk. Why would you go with that guy? He's not even a member of the Guardians proper. Why would you do it, Jake? He's, a mem- he's an OG member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. All right. And in the second movie... Groot officially says he's a guardian. Oh, right. Well, you should have done Rocket by a million thousand landslides. All right, fine, fine, fine. Here we go. Rocket Raccoon, as portrayed and voiced by Bradley Cooper (laughs) in the film Gardens of the Galaxy. Oi, governor! <laughs> uh, Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Uh, yellow submarine. Yes, of course you're doing the Marvel vs. Capcom 3 interpretation based <laughs> on bye, the original bye, bye, bye. inception of Rocket Raccoon. I get it. Totally. Absolutely. Log trap! Log trap! <laughs> hey, it's me, Everyman Star-Lord, and I am a <laughs> wizard. Uh, welcome, everybody, to our episode on Guardians of the Galaxy. Right, Gamora? Something, something... Uh, honor something something Thanos my father oh did someone say Thanos I think I hear Josh Brolin is Thanos in my other ear is that right Thanos balanced as everything should be <laughs> wow you were in no country for all men remember that fucking movie dude yeah 
fun fact, Anton Shigur is a real guy. I met him on set. <laughs> Actually has a great haircut. It's kind uh, of cool. Welcome, everybody, to our episode of Guardians of the Galaxy. Don't mind that batshit insane intro. I think our intros are getting weirder and weirder. I am as punchy, Holden. I am hungover from 420. <laughs> I am. I've just spent the past four hours in a, in a with uh, trying to get my car fixed. Uh, please, if you're going to talk to me about how punchy you are, you need to do it in the voice of the popular character Drax, the Destroyer. Drax, why are you punchy? Oh, God, I've watched so many hours of, uh, of that fucking character, <laughs> and I can't remember any of his fucking And lines. it's still so hard to, like, not, like, yeah, it's so hard to do it without actually being Bautista. What is the deal with that? I do, I feel the same way about that character, where I'm like, he's so specific, and he's so particular, and yet, I can't conjure an impression. Oh, I mean, there's, like, it's, it is, it is all his performance. He really is just perfect. Like, the weird, just eye of the needle of a fucking perfection of just saying a line like, nothing goes over my head. Yeah. I would me- I would simply catch it. Yeah. My reflexes are incredible. <laughs> like, <laughs> great. Amazing. Yeah, Delivered I, with such. I rewatched the first oh. movie, of course, in the lead up to this, and I fell in love with the Guardians all over again. Uh, let's get into the gush here. I was like many of you had never heard of the guardians of the galaxy ever before. Didn't re- know that that was a thing when they announced that as like a new IP for the MCU as one of the, you know what phase three, I believe of the MCU. Um, I was uh, definitely kind of scratching the head a little bit. And then I remember uh, we were recording an episode of round table of gentlemen and the, on a summer day, I remember it was very hot and uh, I it was the first time I ever met Danny Tamborelli, who did that show, mm. and we hit it off really fast. He was such a just fun, easygoing guy. If you don't know, Danny Tamborelli uh, was on the sketch comedy show All That on Nickelodeon, as well as uh, the uh, performer who was Little Pete and Pete and Pete, and that rascal in, uh, uh, call it? I wanted to say Quack Shot, What's Wrong With Me, and Mighty Ducks. Mm. He great actor that like you, I was right in my wheelhouse from childhood and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and we ended up deciding, Hey, we're, let's go see a movie guardians of the galaxy. And we went, and I remember going with him after round table to see guardians of the galaxy. And then after that, we went to barcade in Brooklyn and beat the Ninja turtles arcade game. And I felt like I was like having this like amazing childhood moment. And guardians of the galaxy was, was a big part of that because we just, we went into the theater and God damn it, how good is it to get out of that summer, that shitty, sticky, nasty, cum-covered Brooklyn heat? You know what I mean? <laughs> just some about it. There was it's Hot just in the air. Somewhere in the city, back of my neck, getting cummy and sticky. <laughs> All right, Jake, please. We don't need to color it out like that. I mean, good lord, my friend. That's what the song's about, Holden. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we we go into the theater and Guardians happens at us. I just remember being so pleasantly surprised by that movie and just felt they hit every note so well. They managed to surprise me 
in a phase three Marvel film, which was just something that, and, and it did just felt like that whole breath of fresh air. Like the comedy was genuinely funny and like not in a Joss Whedon quippy kind of way that we'd come to expect from an MCU film. The, the emotional beats were actually almost more surprising. They really found me in the feels for, you know, this talking raccoon and this talking tree and, and the like, and, just did my favorite thing best. They melded comedy and and sad and drama and sadness and and in such a really wonderful, charming. And then and then of course all the action set pieces, all the sci-fi element, the way that it felt like a new experience in space mm-hmm. that wasn't like any that I'd experienced up until then. Maybe in like a comic book, maybe like in a comic book like Saga, but not on the big screen in that way. And I think now it's hard to talk about it without not without feeling that way about it because since it's come out there have been so many uh not just uh, first of all just so many other movies with the guardians in them with that exact mm-hmm. cast like not just the sequel and the upcoming third film but you also have how huge of a part they play in Infinity War and Endgame and they just became such a staple of the MCU because they became S tier, like yeah. flagship characters. Yes. After what we, as we are going to describe, a tumultuously long and bumpy and fucky road to get them there. To the point where it's ludicrous that we're even talking about them. But I love how meta that is because they're the like little group that could. They are the underdog story mm-hmm. with inherent in the, in the just the lore of the characters. And then also as an IP as a part of the MCU, the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it just was such a wonderful time in that theater. And I don't know... I mean, it's definitely, all right, I, I would say I've definitely had, like, as strong, if not stronger, MCU movie theater experiences, like Infinity War probably would be up mm-hmm. there, you know, um, Ragnarok, but that is one of the best ones by far. That I would look towards that as being one of the strongest MCU movie theater experiences and movies in the whole catalog. The sequel more varying results with that and opinions on that. And it's its own thing. And honestly, this third one, I, I, I feel like this is the Whizbrew curse because we're recording this before it comes out, but I'm having, I'm feeling really strong about it, especially because, you know, it's James Gunn's baby and it's him saying goodbye to his baby uh, as he now is fully taking the reins over at DC. And we'll get into all that craziness because that is also an anomaly. Everything about this is anomalous, in other mm-hmm. words. Right, Jake? Now, how? what's your deal? Did you read the comics before, unlike me? Or did it hit you in a similar fashion when uh, Guardians hit the big screen? So I was a uh, chubby, uh, joyous little comic book collector at the peak of the collector boom in the 90s, as I feel like a lot of us were. And I collected the pogs. I collected the comics and I collected the Marvel cards and in every set of Marvel cards, whether it was the Marvel masterpieces series one and series two, there were always, there's just these weird ass characters holding. I sent you a JPEG of it. There they were the guardians of the galaxy Uh with this like weird mulleted, uh, captain America, (laughs) Yondu with his fucking weird Mohawk Starhawk with his like floopy pointy loopy cape. And like just this like just this guy that looked like a fucking like final fight goon 
Mr. Charlie 27 hanging up the rear. And I was just like, I'm never going to care about these characters. <laughs> like at age five, six, seven, just looking at these dumb dumbs and being like, these guys look weird. I read the back of their card. They're, they, they adventure in the future. Like nothing, like they don't even get to talk to Spider-Man. Like, why would I ever care? Surely I will never care about Guardians of the Galaxy, I said, while playing marbles next to the swing sets back in <laughs> kindergarten. Um, and I didn't. I did not read any of those comics. Uh, did not catch any of them in the crossovers. Did not give a single fuck about any of these characters. And even when, as we'll get into, they had their uh, 2000s resurgence with the Annihilation and the Annihilation Conquest uh, crossovers that were getting rave reviews. Like I understood implicitly, hey, you got to check out this Guardians of the Galaxy book by Abnan and Lanning. It's like incredibly fun. It's incredibly uh, inventive. They're taking all these old Marvel cosmic characters and kind of like reusing them in this compelling, bombastic, epic, yet like uh, humane and approachable way. It's like incredible comics writing. And I was just like, no, thank you. I need to see Captain America and Iron Man punch each other because they had a disagreement about some bullshit in the Civil War plot. That's what I cared about. Civil War, Dark Reign, uh, Secret War. That was my shit. You had to have a shit. war in there. You had to have some kind of warring yeah. factions happening and with the, people the with The very on. thing, the very thing that made all these crossovers so spectacular is that they got to not have to deal with any of those overbearing other things that were happening in the universe. Forgot completely about it. Um, when they announced Guardians of the Galaxy, my first response wasn't like, fucking who? My first response is like, oh, it makes sense because that's like an entire wing of the Marvel IP that isn't tied to mutants. It uh -huh. isn't tied to Spider-Man. It isn't tied to the X-Men. And like back then, before like the big Disneyification of the entire uh, process, it was actually kind of hard for them to like make use of these unconventional. Like they they needed to use characters like that. Well, it got them into what it got them into outer space, right? Yeah. It, it was it it that's what they needed. And I wonder if there was in a, in in the MCU history an actual successful Fantastic Four film that brought in the silver surfer mm -hmm. if we ever even would have gotten the guardians i feel like they were that we we always were tr like or they were always trying to get us as a, as an audience into the outer space mm -hmm. element of marvel but but they never could quite get us past the stratosphere right to like move us in there there was always just every attempt up to that point was shitty mm -hmm. and so then they were like here how about these random ass guys? <laughs> will, will you go with these guys? And when it comes to the movie, I will be forever grateful for it because for all the reasons that you said, that it has the kind of unconventional, surprising amount of gore and violence that a trauma alum like James Gunn would have in his back pocket. It had the uh, ennui and soulfulness of the 70s music that is a wonderful mirror of the 70s era writers and artists that were originally crafting these stories. Like whatever this cosmic ennui and like heartbreak they were feeling in the 70s, cranked out on mushrooms and working in New York City that translated to, into these stories. Like yeah. mirrors the music really well. And uh, the cast was incredibly charming. You know, the all the dynamics that you talked about, the heartbreak, the loss, the friendship, uh, coming to terms with your fucked up past and like moving forward anyway, 
it hit me at that exact perfect moment because I saw it opening night about two weeks long into a massive depression that I had uh, been in because I was in the mid, I had like been coming to terms with like my first long-term relationship of like my post twenties. Like I had thought I had met the person I was going to be with forever. I was like, like we literally had plans to see this exact movie and she broke it off for reasons that are um, normal. Uh, the the normal reason of just like not wanting to be with me, and I was just like, yeah, you have yeah, because you have penises for toes, and who you know, and God bless your current wait, fiance, but it's a disturbing. Wait, she never mentioned. <laughs> wait, you don't have? <laughs> I've never looked. No, I don't pit. No, I don't piss out of my feet, Jake. I got I got a normal scenario going. I mean, on. I've never looked at another man's feet before because I didn't want to see their ten little dicks. <laughs> Wait, this whole time? <laughs> I just realized, yeah, in the shower, you'd be like, avert, like we're all averting our eyes just from the midsection of I'm each other. But you're like, yeah, you, that's why you're always staring at the ceiling when you walk into a public shower. Obviously, when we're all at the LPN studios and we enter the group yeah, shower. Yeah, so we do the group shower thing after our weekly volleyball game that we do. Uh, yeah, you're always staring we're at the ceiling. We're losing the point. I was despondent. I was absolutely despondent. And this movie provided the exact right mix of white guy pathos, uh, fun, adventure, jokes, shock, and uh, and just everything that it literally just fucking punched my heart and like restarted my soul. And I literally walked out of that theater like, and uh, okay. I walked out of that theater okay. And that is something I will always credit to that movie. And it's interesting now because it it both created, I think like without it, we wouldn't have Ragnarok, right? Mm -hmm. And stuff like that. And we wouldn't have like pretty fantastic, you know, we probably wouldn't even have something in the way on the, and the Batman movie, you know, like the, the soundtrack effect that that movie had on every single other movie for better or for worse, because it both impacted some of my favorite superhero movies that have come out in the last few years. But it also is like a trend that is now in every movie, as you classically mentioned, Black Adam more recently kicked it. Don't give a damn about my bad. Rabbit. I don't know what song it was, yeah. but you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Jerry bomb. I think it's yeah. the guardians one. It, you know, it's just, there's always got to kick in with that like rock and roll song that your dad used to listen to or whatever. And you fucking, you know, and, and you see like a, a really kick-ass battle scene. Honestly, you know what? I'd like to hand it to uh, the film Dirty Work. <laughs> I think that was the original inspiration. Hell yeah, street fight music. I like a pina colada. But regardless, that like musical kick-in. I asked Twitter, what are like some of the most annoying needle drops that happen? Oh, great. And uh, I got... Kung Fu Fighting by uh, <laughs> what is that in? by Carl Douglas. Kung, everybody was I Kung Fu. Like, oh, they're not giving it to specific. It's just like what song yeah, yeah. would be is the most uh, annoying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Going up that spirit in the uh, sky. Spirit yeah, spirit of the sky. sky. Everything. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Gardens of the Galaxy uses this one, but it's been so overused. It's in the Mario movie, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Mr. Blue Sky, please tell uh-huh. us why you had to hide away for so. Yeah, I'm Mr. Blue really Sky, into classic. Today. Yeah. But yeah, there's just... And the difference between how Guardians has incorporated the mixtape as this symbolic emotional connection with uh, Star-Lord's roots and the fact that when music is playing, they go out of their way to make sure that we understand it is being played. Here's the word of the day. Diegetically within the reality of the story. Yes. So you can't just like throw Bohemian Rhapsody over some B-roll and call it a day which is what so many movies do. Yeah, they actually placed it within in this brilliant, smart, great way. Yeah, with the with the tape and and the emotional significance of the tape and of the soundtrack is is uh you know, they they really haven't been able to do that in any other movie. So yeah, you have Thor Ragnarok, you have all those great music moments in it. But yeah, there's no other than like just in general they gave the movie this like 70s sheen. Uh, there's no actual like embedding the the music into the story like they do pull off in Guardians so well. Um, it's really cool, and I'm excited to talk about it. And it is really a winding road to get to <laughs> that whole happening because I just don't think. Yeah, who the fuck was talking about Guardians? I mean, a young James Gunn was reading the Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> I guess, but I don't I don't know who the hell was. So let's find out how. This franchise went from utter obscurity in its inception to one of the biggest franchises in superhero films. Guardians of the Galaxy, superhero team that first appeared in 1969, published by Marvel Comics, which has gone on to become a popular movie franchise, part of the MCU. And that is, of course, largely thanks to the directorial work of James Gunn. We'll get there. But first, the initial version of the Guardians were created by Arnold Drake, But Roy Thomas takes a little credit for how the concept got off the ground. Roy Thomas said, Guardians of the Galaxy started out as an idea of mine about super gorillas fighting against Russians and red Chinese who had taken over and divided the USA. I got a sort of general approval out of Stan Lee, I think, and gave the idea to Arnold Drake since I had not time to write and research it. Arnold went in for a conference with Stan and Stan, maybe Arnold too, decided to change it to an interplanetary situation. All the characters and situations in Guardians were created by Arnold and or Stan. Drake was also credited for co-creating Dead Man and the Doom Patrol for DC. Which is funny, too, because Doom Patrol is, uh, I feel like, also wouldn't exist without the Guardians, like, Mm -hmm. on in its TV series. Because we also didn't mention how after the Guardians... It not only opened the doors for just like way lesser known IPs getting much more of a do mm-hmm. in these in in better treatment in terms of TV and film because now you don't know now there's literally no connection yeah between how well known or how good a comic series did and how it's going to do in the box office totally and then on top of which that, is why we get a Moon Knight series which is yes. why we get a Werewolf series yes. which is why we get so many out of left field cho- like. 
the very idea Groot. Yeah. Fucking Groot yeah. is a goddamn Funko juggernaut. Yeah. It's crazy. And on top of that, how many fucking ragtag teams like Doom Patrol did you see in, you know, movies, TV, yeah. you know, obviously Suicide Squad wouldn't exist without Guard. That was definitely well, DC's Suicide attempt. Squad would have existed without uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And then Warner Brothers was like, why don't we make this Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's uh, we just, did a whole episode. This is not as, but fun. still, it's yeah, it's just kind of that is interesting how it opened the doors on that stuff as well. Their first appearance back to the comics was in Marvel Superheroes issue number eighteen. They are depicted as Robin Hoods in outer space who are battling against the Badoon Empire and evil <laughs> the fucking Badoon. I know, and that well, I have to say that a few times in this episode, um, uh, an evil society of humanoid reptiles that were initially created to go up against the Silver Surfer. And this is all in the realm of Silver Surfer and Thanos and Howard the Duck. Uh, The initial group consisted of Major Vance Astro, a young astronaut sent on a solo mission to Earth's nearest star, Alpha Centauri, on a 1,000-year-long trip via suspended animation. I can't believe how overcomplicated this fucking shit is, Mm -hmm. by the way. They made things so much more complicated than they ever needed to be in these old comics. On Alpha Centauri, he encounters a society of blue-skinned alien folk and a society of humans from Earth, because after he had left on his 1,000-year journey, uh, they were able to develop faster-than-light technology technology and were able to get out to Alpha Centauri way sooner than him and establish a full society. So along with a Centauri bowman named Yondu (laughs) and two genetically modified humans, one named Charlie 27 that is as wide as a house and incredibly strong, and the other named Martinex, whose skin is crystalline and can withstand extreme temperatures, they take the fight to the Badoon. (laughs) This ragtag team was only seen in that one issue of Marvel Superheroes. There is no sign of any Guardians for the next five years after, to the point where I just have to say, how the fuck do they even remember this existence of of these of these guys to bring them back at that point it is miraculous that they even managed to get past this part of the story it's i mean you if you look at the cover and you look at this original art by gene colin you have just like these four malshapen men all in like weird non-primary well i guess charlie's yellow But yeah, you have this wide man with like a fucking bucket for a head. You have Vance in his all black outfit, just kind of like looming in shadow. So you have Martin X in this crystalline, just like he's literally just a crystal man. And then you have Yondu with his bow and arrow and like swoopy mohawk. And of course, the like I'm not buying a action figure of these guys. Well, they're like, they're just so just, yeah, they they look like just some background characters in a Jack Kirby comic. Like, these are not, you're supposed to be your main guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there probably wouldn't actually be a Guardians of the Galaxy in pop culture if it weren't for Steve Gerber, who wanted to be able to stretch his creativity out past the confines of regular superhero affair at the time. Gerber said... Most of the stories I was scripting were set in the present. I wanted to do something that combined the standard superhero elements with something a little different so that I could give my imagination a bit more play. We had Dave Cockrum uh, redesign the costumes. He created a new starship. We called him that because he'd always pour rum on his cock. Uh, He redesigned the costumes. We created a new starship for them to pilot, and we uh, revised the premise of the strip so that they were no longer fighting the Badoon on Earth and sent them off amongst the stars. 
Uh, Gerber was a bit of an oddball in the world of comics. He was most known for creating the character Howard the Duck, uh, a character that does get teased in the post credits <laughs> in the original Guardians. And I do hope that he does formally get uh, more solidly introduced into the MCU in the future. In Guardians of the Galaxy 2, he's seen um, flirting with what I can only assume is what is implied to be a robot prostitute. <laughs> and he just says, you're all out of luck until you've gone duck. <laughs> so he's, he's there. He's there. This iteration of the team first appeared in Marvel 2-in-1 number 5 before getting a run in The Defenders number 26 through 29 in 1975. We meet the Guardians via Doctor Strange, Hulk, and Valkyrie as they travel to 3007 to fight the Badoon. Badoon, Ooh. Badoon, Badoon. Oh, the hated Badoon. Ooh, those Badoons. Ooh, they make me angry. Ooh, with their lizard faces. Uh -huh. <laughs> the Badoons, I read a lot of comics, and I didn't actually meet the Badoon in any of these, uh, but there is like some throwaway lines in the Annihilation crossovers where we first get to know the modern Guardians, where like a character is like, well, thank God this hasn't crossed over into Badoon space. That's they're the last thing we need right now. Ooh, those Badoon. <laughs> the fucking Badoon. They really get my fucking eggs burning. Damn it. <laughs> uh, so they are led by the arrogant, mysterious Starhawk, backed by Nikki, a genetically enhanced human with flames for hair. These are some of the, the, the goobers you were describing earlier, Jake, mm -hmm. when you were a child on the playground, uh, realizing that you'd never support them ever as a franchise. This was encapsulated uh, in a run in Marvel Presents starting in 1976. It was canceled due to poor sales. After nine issues. And and by the way, those two, Starhawk and Nikki, are there along with the previous crew. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of the last editions of the original version of the Guardians. From that point, the team made guest appearances and stuff like Thor, the Avengers, Miss Marvel. Again, I'm assuming this is just a, an excuse. They are there to get superheroes into outer space. It seems like what it is, right? It is, yes. Uh, that that seems to be the theme, and we'll you'll have another example of that coming up. I know for sure uh, that, and it comes up again when it was time to make it into a movie. That the allure of like using the temple, the the unchangeable fact that if you are working for Marvel, you have to tell a superhero story, but deep down. You want to talk about sci-fi bullshit uh -huh. or astrology or just, you know, your head is in the stars. And even if you have a gig writing for a company that will only publish superhero books, you're goddamn going to get your space stories told. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely. And, and also it's it's. The world around you. We're about to encounter a resurgence because Star Trek, mm -hmm. Next Generation, like, and, and just a resurgence of popularity of space in popular culture. So they turn to the Guardians as soon as they realize they 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 need to put something, some space bullshit out there mm -hmm. for the for the nerds. With uh, Marvel Two and One Number Sixty Nine. Nice. <laughs> in 1980, right? Everybody has said the dirty number. The Guardians in the future they were a part of were separated from the Marvel Universe as an alternate timeline. And the Guardians once again disappeared from comics for almost a decade. They were like ripped from the the basic lore of, of, of comics at the that time. The weird exception is that Vance Astro... His his alternate self is still in the Marvel Universe, but he becomes the character Marvel Boy, <laughs> uh, and he joins the New Warriors. I know it's a, this is of no interest to anybody but equally middle-aged, sweaty nerds listening to this, but 
Vance Astro becomes Marvel boy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now's where, I was going to say now's where things, where things get uh, a little more complicated, but no, they just continue to be as complicated as they, they've been up to this point. Uh, mm-hmm. We do have to take a little side moment here and talk about Star-Lord, uh, who is created by Steve Englehart. Oh, my he first God. Appeared, he first appeared in Marvel Preview in 1976. Englehart explained what happened from there. I conceived something very large. My hero would go from being an unpleasant, introverted jerk to the most cosmic being in the universe, and I would tie it into my then-new interest in astrology. Mm-hmm. After his Earthbound beginning, his mind would be opened step-by-step step with a fast-action story on Mercury, a love story on Venus, a war story story on Mars, and so on, out to the edge of the solar system, and then beyond. But after his Earthbound beginning, where I established him as an unpleasant introverted jerk, I left Marvel. So no one ever saw what he was to become. And yet, somehow, Chris Claremont ends up taking the character and running with him in order to tell fun sci-fi tales up until the early 80s. So I read uh, they released a trade paperback of like Star-Lord's early, all these adventures are in black and white. And uh, Englehart, his whole like deal is that he was inspired by astrology. Like he just immediately just got like he got obsessed with star charts and signs and phases and was like, I need to share this cosmic awareness through a character. And that and uh, weirdly enough, he was just given the name Star Lord. He was like, hey, I um, his editor was like, I need you to make a character uh, but he's going to be called Star-Lord. Go. <laughs> um, in this original story, fucking Peter Quill um, is about to be murdered as a baby <laughs> by his father in the woods. And his father, so enraged and eager for baby blood, has a heart attack and leaves him uh, for 24 hours under the stars, like staring up until the authorities can find him. He then uh, revisits the site of the incident as a teenager, finds a group of aliens. He runs and gets his mother and the aliens kill his mom in front of him. He is then sent to an orphanage where he swears revenge on the aliens that killed his mom. And they he becomes an astronaut. It follows him through like up until he's in his 30s. He makes his way through the space program to a space space station where an alien entity says i'm going to pick one of you to become the star lord and you will like journey amongst the cosmos as like a warrior and he's like i volunteer and everybody is like no you're a weirdo who keeps muttering about how he wants to get revenge on spacemen and we don't believe you (laughs) so he literally goes postal it is page after page of him mowing down his co-workers with a laser rifle (laughs) to fight his way through the space station to get to the rendezvous point, at which point he meets the Lord of the Sun, who looks exactly like the Christian god of monotheistic tradition. He gives him his jaunty little helmet and goggles and a magic gun that can shoot air, fire, water, and earth. And he's given the ability to fly. But the whole thing is crazy. The whole thing from beginning to end is crazy, And it somehow informs the Peter Quill character as we understand him in the Marvel comics. You know, uh, 
His mother is shown as being like delirious and out of it and constantly sick. He has a chip on his shoulder about his past, about his upbringing, about his lack of a father. He's like driven to journey among the stars, inspired by pop culture, which of the day was the OG Star Trek original series. Like there's so many weird little parallels that made it through to the character we know and uh, appreciate today from that original story by Englehart, all inspired by his own obsession with astrology and um, just, again, I cannot stress this enough, an actual workplace shooting spree is like part of his origin story. <laughs> Pretty crazy. And that's where we leave it like up into the early 80s. Another whole ass decade passes and then in the 90s, with the popularity, as I mentioned, of Star Trek The Next Generation, Marvel Editor-in-Chief Tom DeFalco decided to bring back the Guardians, hoping to bring in some of those fans with sci-fi tales of space travel and battles. Jim Valentino, a comics writer and penciler on the rise that had just joined Marvel, was already working on a pitch to bring back the Guardians. So uh, he ends up with the Guardians, and they get their first self-titled comic uh, here, which goes for 62 issues into the mid-90s. And this run was known for being a bit lighter and brighter than the other fair around this time, which was edgy and dark. But late in the run, Jim Valentino ends up jumping ship with some other Marvel hotshots and co-founds Image Comics, therefore abandoning the Guardian. Valentino is actually the creator of Shadowhawk. Mm. If you uh, were a giant Image fan like I was around that time, you I definitely have Shadowhawk number one in, uh, in a drawer in my uh, parents' house somewhere. With Again, these characters are so fucking gonzo. You have like Yondu with his magic uh, arrow that can be controlled by whistling. But he is also this shamanic, like, medicine man of the team that, mm. like, is eschews all technology. Uh, Nikki is, like, the sarcastic, like, uh, you know, uh, one just one of the guys, gals that is constantly, like, making uh, little quips and uh, rebuffing everybody's advances. Starhawk is this, like, cosmic omniscient being who is also his own wife. And he has to share his body with his wife and like uh, yeah. they trade Starhawk places. is like kind of an er early-ish trans-ish character in this weird way. I mean, I guess not trans because he's like the fusion. They are the fusion of, yeah. of a man and a woman. But it's a very bizarre sounding storyline. It's a very weird setup. They've had... They had babies together with themselves. It's, I don't even. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And with Major Vance as the main character, who is this, like, uh, Captain America-inspired 
uh, guy who uh, at one point finds his shield and starts wielding that. Uh, and he also has uh, psychokinesis, which I find to be such an out of like the the like two fisted, like uh, patriotic leader of this like uh, burly squad has mental powers. It's such a weird choice. It's yeah. there's so many weird choices. But I will say in the first issue, we're introduced to a villain who goes by the name of motherfucking Taserface. <laughs> That's right. Taserface is the first villain that the 90s Guardians of the Galaxy faced down against. And believe it or not, unlike his uh, movie namesake, this one does in fact shoot electricity out of his face. <laughs> That's fucking awesome, dude. Electric guitar solo, throw it in right now, dude. <laughs> That's fucking killer. Uh, and then another fucking decade goes by with like no I d- it just is mind blowing that this is it's the little franchise that could there's just how do they keep coming back entire giant spans of time pass without them in comics but in 2006 a crossover storyline was published by Marvel titled Annihilation which brought Marvel back into outer space this story involved Silver Surfer Nova Thanos, Drax the Destroyer, Super Scroll, Ronan the Accuser, Star-Lord, and Gamora, among others. And the series got a sequel titled Annihilation Conquest, written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Uh, editor Bill Roseman said, As the planning of Annihilation Conquest came together, it occurred to us that, if things went well, there would be a group of characters left standing who would make for a very interesting and fun team. And this team would be recovering from huge crossover event wars in space, and therefore would be dead set on removing the threat of any future Annihilation-type events and be this, 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 let's say, guardian group <laughs> that are protecting the galaxy. So after the events of Annihilation Conquest, Star-Lord forms a team to protect the galaxy. His recruits are Adam Warlock, Drax the Destroyer, Gamora, Phylavel, and Rocket Rock Raccoon, Groot, and Mantis. Now let's get into this rest of the gangs. I know we gotta give everybody their due here. Mm. I was gonna start with Drax the Destroyer. First appeared in The Invincible Iron Man in number 55 in 1973. He had a reoccurring role in Captain Marvel after that time. In the comics, Drax is originally a dude named Arthur Douglas, whose family is taken out by Thanos. His spirit is later placed into a powerful new body, and Drax is born. He was created by writer and penciler Jim Starlin, who said, In the beginning, Drax was a versatile, because I didn't know what the hell to do with him. Uh, he was an element. He was supposed to be Thanos' kryptonite. I sort of drifted away from that idea, and when I came back to using him, I made a big change in him. I brain-damaged him and made him into Hulk. Because Marvel didn't have a dumb green thing at the time, and I thought they should. Yeah, Drax at one point just becomes a big dumb Hulk in space with his little purple hood and his little skull necklace. He shows up in all sorts of Infinity crossovers from the original Infinity Gauntlet series to Infinity Crusade and all that. He's just like one of these cosmic magoogoos like uh, Epoch and Ego the Living Planet and Eternity and Infinity and the Living Tribunal. He's just like part of this Marvel cosmic pastiche. And it wasn't until the 2000s where um, another writer that is very key in this like Marvel cosmic uh, uh, resurrection, Keith Giffen, uh, gets a shot at the character and he completely recasts him to the point of in the first issue having him murdered 
and then reborn as this like more shit kicker Rambo kind of guy who thinks more tactically and has like, you know, not just going me hate puny space humans like it just doesn't, you know, um, he give him a like sassy earth girl like a ward that he has to protect who follows him around, like basically kind of making him into that. Um, it's like that. Oh, God, it's it's absolutely like that, uh, you know, Batman, the Dark Knight with like cute Robin kind of as, you know, like the big surly grizzled man with mm-hmm. the little like cheerful but still streetwise and sarcastic girl uh-huh. your last of us scenario you know it's it's a thing that's been done but it was very novel in the 2000s and of course they give drax his like a uh, cool tribal tattoos all over his body and his uh iconic pair of two random ass hunting knives yeah that wasn't at all what was the is there any one-to-one to God of War? Like, it feels very similar, right? Did, I did mean, one inspire the other or vice versa? The datification of everything was happening at the time, but this was, it was definitely novel at the time. It wasn't an over. I'm just talking about the tribal tattoos and the twin blades, you mm. know, feels like just similar in design even. I, we were we were all spartaned up. Mm. Everybody wanted a shirtless guy with like cool ancient energy. And I, mean, like, I still yeah. want that. Yeah, yeah. Living with me, <laughs> holding me in the night. <laughs> Jim Starlin also created Thanos and Gamora. Gamora first appeared in Strange Tales number 180 in 1975. Starlin said, she's always been the adult in the room. She's the straight man for the pips and the draxes and the what have you, which doesn't make her the most interesting character, but makes her essential to get the rest of the story moving. So I always treated her as such. Uh, you've got Rocky Raccoon, who first appeared in Marvel Preview number seven as Rocky. Uh, this is in 1976. He was created by Bill Mantlo and Keith uh, Giffen and was supposed to be a one-off character, but Marvel writers kept bringing him back again and again. Still, it took almost 10 years to br- for him to appear again in Marvel Comics after his debut. And, of course, he is inspired by the Beatles song Rocky Raccoon. He's even, what, isn't he looking for a Gideon's Bible in yeah. the in the first uh, appearance? And, listen, we can't get into it now, but the, like, weird fucking odyssey that this character's origin right. has gone through over the years. I'm talking the cult of the loonies on Half-World. I'm talking the eternal shrinks. There's, like, so many bizarre fucking things they've done to justify this what was supposed to be a one-time goofy Beatles joke in a filler story for Marvel as this like actual member of this universe and I can also at least say he initially appeared with rocket skates instead of a jetpack so he had like the rocket shooting out of his feet essentially and um just this tiny little pistol Mm -hmm. instead it was like a very aw look at that cutie Mm -hmm. as opposed to like the He's still really cute, but he's got that those big honking, you know, rocket launchers and mm-hmm. uh, all that good stuff. And the jetpack, though, they did they did turn it into that. Groot first appeared back in 1960, and you got to look up the first appearance of Groot yeah. on the cover um, of that comic. He was created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. He's just like a big, dumb, miserable-looking like tree trunk in its initial inception. Yeah, this is you know this is from the Fin Fang Foom, the Taboo era. It's just one of those big, dumb. Uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, monster of the week monsters, and fair enough. Fair enough to uh, his characterization. His first line is right there on the cover, yep. and it just says, Behold, 
I am Groot. Oh, but he then continues to say other things. So the the whole trope of him only saying I am Groot definitely wasn't Oh, he uh, didn't just... There. Uh, in the original, in Annihilation Conquest, when they're first bringing the Guardians together, Groot has lots of lines, mm. and it's only like a couple of issues into the journey that they kind of decide on the gimmick of him just being able to say, I am Groot. Yeah, and I mean, he only shows up a few times until 2006 when he gets pulled into that Annihilation storyline. And he's always this evil alien invader up to that point Mm -hmm. before they start to utilize him in different ways. Then you have Mantis, uh, who first appeared in the Avengers in 1973. I, I forgot that we don't get her in the first Guardians. And I think that she is the big standout in Guardians Volume 2. And mm-hmm. now I can't imagine them without her. She's so funny. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the actress later to, who kills it. And she's just such a such a important part of the team at this point. So it's so funny. It's so interesting to me that like she wasn't even there uh, b- back in that first movie. She first appeared in The Avengers 1973 and her creator Steve Englehart took her with him when he left Marvel and told stories with her and at DC he told stories with her at Eclipse Comics as well as Image Comics before bringing her back to Marvel where she joined the Guardians I don't think I've ever heard of that happening before I think that's really interesting that he even was able to do that I guess she was just such a lesser known character that no one cared about so he just was like she's mine dibs and just used her in all these different stories across these it also helps that uh these characters weren't responsible for multi-billion dollar properties totally 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 just to round things out, even though they're less of a part of the story, as of now at least, Adam Warlock, though, will be in the third movie, apparently. But as far as the other uh, characters mentioned previously go, Adam Warlock was introduced into comics in the late 60s, but it was Roy Thomas and Jim Starlin that developed him further in the 1970s. Uh, he's a major player in the Guardians in the comics at this time. He's been teased in the MCU before, and like I said, he'll be officially joining in Volume God, 3. God, I hope not. God, I hope not. I always hated he him. He is, though. I he hated is. his stupid disco hair. I hated his stupid disco outfits. <laughs> I hated that he, everything is just like, oh, it's him, the most special boy of all, the wielder of the soul gem. <laughs> Adam Warlock is here. And I just, he was always such a dumb holdover. And again, because he was such a cosmic focused character, I never read any of his stories. So whenever he just showed up and everybody's like, ooh, it's Adam Warlock. I'd be like, uh, boo. Boo. You're just booing at a comic book. Everyone around you at the park is like, get a little of this fucking guy. He's, he's always had a wishy-washy power set. He He's always just like, I don't know. I never cared for the character. Oh, my God. He's got penises for feet. Everybody run. And then everyone's running out of the park. And it's a whole thing. Phyla uh, <laughs> Vell, this scenario I've created in my head. Phyla Vell, can you tell me anything about Phyla Vell? Was created in 2004 by Peter, David, and Paul as a seta and seems to be kept out of the MCU at this point. And she's like, she looks like this badass, like, swords, swordswoman who with, like, silver hair and, and looks badass. And I was kind of like, why is she just not in the mix at uh, all? Her character is very weird. Um, she's a legacy. Uh, she kind of embodies the legacy of two big Marvel space characters. She is the daughter of Capt of the original Captain Marvel, mm. Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, who is always was embroiled with all these copyright weirdness with uh, Shazam Captain Marvel that we kind of talked about in our Shazam episode. 
Um, the silver hair is a hold because of her Cree heritage, but also in the events of annihilation, she gets the uh, quantum bands of Quasar, who was another like big in the nineties uh, cosmic character who was basically like a one man Green Lantern. Like he could make energy stuff and fly around space and shoot beams and do all that stuff. Um, she was also in a uh, gay relationship with another cosmic character called Moon Dragon, who is uh, sounds like a slur. Yeah, they hear you, dang Moon Dragons. <laughs> no, it's fine. She's a bald chick with a gem in her head nice. and big earrings, and she is always in skimpy outfits. Um, but uh, during the during Annihilation. Uh, I forget if it's in Annihilation or Annihilation Conquest. Uh, I think it's Conquest. She just turns into an actual dragon in a thing that I'm not familiar with. So you got like this Aragon energy going between her and uh, Philavel. Uh, you know, she, but she is kind of the POV character in Conquest. It's like her journey and her like trying to find Adam Warlock. And she's like a big mover and shaker in all of these crossover events to the point where um, the conquests, the, the conquest thing was really supposed to like launch her career, you know, to get her over as a character, as a main tier, uh, kind of Marvel, Marvel A-lister. And it wasn't until the guardians kind of got a much bigger reaction with their more like kind of underdog story with their weirder kind of presentation with just Abnett and Lanning's just like, uh, a I for writing team books and the interplay between Rocket and Groot and Peter Quill and all this stuff that all kind of came together. Um, weirdly enough, this is another thing in the first Annihilation book, which or crossover, Peter Quill is just kind of hanging out as like Nova's friend. Like it's mostly about Nova, who is a different space Green Lantern. We see, you know, the Nova Corps uh, of in you know, the Xandar yes. police force is uh, in the comics, they're like just dudes in centurion helmets that fly around and blast stuff. They don't have like magic ships. Mm -hmm. But uh, he shows up Peter Quill because Nova's the last surviving of the Nova Corps. And he's like has a heavy burden to like protect the galaxy against the annihilation wave. And Peter Quill shows up and like nobody really calls him Star-Lord except in passing as like, hey, weren't you Star-Lord? And he's like, I'd rather not talk about it. He has like a big cybernetic eye. The idea is that it's just like he's an old soul who's been around the block. And it's not until Conquest that they kind of uh, freshen the character up and like kind of really reboot him as this masked, uniformed, sassy team leader that then gets turned into the Star-Lord character in the movies. It's a fascinating journey. Yeah, this is how we get, this is where we really get into the bridge between whatever the Gal Guardians of the Galaxy were in comics up to this point and like getting into the MCU. So Annihilation Conquest happens and then Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning put out a Guardians book starting in 2008 that runs for 25 issues. And though it's not a huge hit, it garners a small but dedicated fan base and then they get to go on to appear in a bunch of other titles around this time. Cut to late 2010. The Guardians get this big push. And I think, again, if it wasn't for this guy, we probably wouldn't have him in the movies. Uh, writer, powerhouse Brian Michael Bendis, along with artist Steve McNiven, and uh, uh, put out uh, another run on the Guardians. And this is the version that was the inspiration for the first movie in the MCU. Uh, in this book, we establish the witty, roasty banter between the crew, which consists of Star-Lord, Drax, Gamora, Rocket, and Groot. 
Bendis said, a lot of people today end up making their own family. You know, there's the family you came from and it may have been broken or you may not have fit in it or whatever. Then you grow up and you make your own family. Your friends become more than just friends. The guardians are like that. The thing that ties them together is everything that was broken in their lives led to them meeting. You look at someone like Gamora or Peter Quill and the thing that binds them together is that their fathers really are nightmares and they do everything they can to correct the damage that their fathers have done to the galaxy. And I think that this element is actually the low key thing that really is what people love about what the franchise has become and why, you know, everyone loves an underdog story. Yes. But also I think there's so much more of a dialogue starting around this time about breaking cycles of trauma Mm -hmm. about how you don't have to just be like beholden to your family that you, your biological family, if they're fuck faces and you can actually create your own communities and create your own family. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually that subtle understanding uh, the Bendis places on the team that James Gunn completely picks up on and runs with in the films is exactly, I think, what people are, uh, at the end of the day, drawn to when it comes to this group and what they and that's how they get you in the heartstrings. I feel like and that's why I love is what how much Gunn and it seems Bendis explores like. Your your dad's a fucking asshole, and you have to deal with that. And like you have you have to come to terms with that. And who's going to help you with that? These these crazy assholes <laughs> that you were thrown together with that under that at the end of the day though understand you, get you, and can help you get past that stuff. And I love that. And I think for me as a person, you know, with everybody in Murder Fist and Roundtable and the Last Podcast Network, I mean, I totally feel that so hard. The reading that quote, probably my favorite quote of the whole uh, research, uh, uh, you know, drive for this episode. I just was like, oh, right. And here is where we're bridging the gap, right? Brian Michael Bennis continues to write for Guardians up through New Guard, which came out starting in 2015. Did you catch an... Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you caught some a decent amount of the Bendis run. I am. I was actually... It was. I was trying to get so in tune with the comics uh, uh, that led to all... I went too far back <laughs> and didn't my, make my way back to the present. Right, right. This is... Yeah, this is definitely, I think, more what they drew on. Then uh, we have, let's, are we ready for it? Are we done with the comics? You want to get into the, the Guardians enter the MCU? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. When Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios started making superhero films, they also created a screenwriting program to funnel through different projects with different writers. One such writer was a woman named Nicole Perlman, who'd not done much previously to this outside of academia. She'd like got a grant through the Tribeca Film Festival mm-hmm. for a screenplay she wrote, um, but she was much more like showed a lot of promise, but ha- what didn't have a ton of credits. The exact kind of person that you bring in yes. for like a fun little workshop and exactly. have them just like mess around. Yep. Perlman was given her choice on what project she'd like to write for a script. Perlman said, we got to choose from a list of half a dozen properties that they had that were lesser Marvel properties. There was no guarantee that these projects would ever get made. And there were properties on that list that were much better known, things that people had heard of. But I saw Guardians of the Galaxy. I took it. Guardians did solve some problems for the folks running the MCU. It brought in the outer space element of Marvel Comics. It held uh, a pathway to the introduction of Thanos, whom they were looking towards to be a major villain in their future plans. 
Perlman said, it's kind of amazing looking back on it, how much freedom I was given. Maybe because it was kind of far-fetched, this idea that this project would actually get chosen to be produced, that I really was given an enormous amount of creative freedom in the way that I don't think you get a lot from studios. They said, basically, here are the comics, come up with a good story, choose the characters you like, and we'll just keep playing with it. The script lay in development after that, though, much like the Guardians of the Galaxy in comics. It laid in development for many years, and it wasn't until early 2012 when Marvel hired James Gunn to rewrite and direct it. All right, let's get into James Gunn. You want to talk anymore about uh, Miss Perlman? Because she really is, by the way, thank Nicole Perlman as much as you want to thank James Gunn. The fact that she just chose this group and wrote a screenplay, and, and even though that screenplay got heavily, heavily rewritten, mm-hmm. still the very, very, very basics are in there. And uh, yeah, if it wasn't for her, this kind of unknown name still to this day, we we wouldn't have this this franchise. Uh, yeah, uh, God, we might have ended up with a fucking Adam Warlock movie. Ah. Perish the fucking thought. He's coming for you, Jake. Volume three, he's coming for you. You know they're going to do something funny with him. You know everybody else feels the same yeah, way yeah. as you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're going to shit on him. It's At least it's in the, the no, realm the comic of Comic writers are so reverent for this fucking <laughs> jackass that looks like he came from a fucking rush uh, <laughs> rock opera concept. <laughs> so... James Gunn. As a kid, he, of course, was a big old comic book nerd. I was sort of an oddball child who didn't really have many friends and loved comic books. Loved DC comic books, loved Marvel comic books. I didn't interact well with my peers, and my parents sent me to a psychiatrist when I was 11 years old to try to figure out what was wrong with me because I never went to school. I just stayed home, read comic books, wrote and drew comic books. This led to his father actively getting involved in his passion. The therapist was apparently like, well, have you considered... (laughs) reading some of these things and getting, you know, communicating with your child about the things they like. Uh, Listen, I was hoping you could just get some brain pills to make them normal. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, they together they go to comic cons. They're reading comic books together. It's really like a beautiful story. And with the rest of his family, Gunn is also making a big uh, uh, (laughs) Gunn is also a big fan. Uh, What? I just imagine like his father, like looking through his stuff being like, oh, he's probably into drugs (laughs) and finding like an early draft of Slither. Yeah. (laughs) And just like just being like, never show this to anybody. He (laughs) he is also a big fan of B movie horror back in the day. And he Mm. ends up making his own eight millimeter zombie flicks uh, at the age of 12 with his brothers in the woods uh, by their house. And he noticed a cave behind there, too. And he went in there and there was a a wooden sword and a master shield. He studied writing, but not for film at Columbia University. And he earned a master of fine arts in 1995. He was kind of in and out with the academics, but Mm. he does end up going to grad school. And that same very... And that very same year, in 1995, he ends up making movies at Troma Entertainment uh, under the tutelage of Troma co-founder Lloyd Kaufman, who, we, of course, we've done our Troma episode. I know we've talked about James Gunn in that episode, but we're going a little deeper on that. Uh, I love this from James Gunn himself. I went in and I thought I was going to be hired to do some personal assistant work or special effects or something. And instead, Lloyd Kaufman offered me 150 bucks to write a screenplay. <laughs> so I was like, all right, Tromeo and Juliet was my opus. Oh so that my was God. like, that's such a trauma story. I fucking love it. And, you know, he has a lot to thank to, to Lloyd. And I love how he includes Lloyd just like he include you know, just like Stan Lee gets included. In many of his movies, in a cameo spot, yeah. you see him in the prison, I believe, the in kiln. the first Guardians. 
is so fun. Listen, wherever wherever there are weird uh, young men willing to write a screenplay for $150, yeah. Lloyd Kaufman will be there to not be willing to spend more than $150 on a screenplay. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Lloyd a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's amazing and getting to go to the trauma offices in Queens and so much love and respect for that dude. And go check out our trauma episode if you want to know more about that. But it I is... mean, I used to date Officer Kabuki Man oh uh, my God. back in the 90s. <laughs> uh, after that film, uh, Tremu and Juliet, that is, he turned toward superhero. I'm fans. sorry, Sergeant Kabuki Man. Yes, he's, please. He's, he, got a, he got a promotion since we dated. Please. After that film, Tremu and Juliet, he turned toward superhero fair with the specials, which he writes, produces, and performs in. It was a contentious set, actually. This is the set where he learned some hard lessons about how to work with an ensemble. And he says about himself at that time, he was pretty difficult to work with and just had a lot of scuffles and was very happy to be done with that movie when it was over. After that, and I was was always curious about this too. I had no idea this was how it happened. His breakthrough into Hollywood... It, it uh, happens with 2002's Scooby-Doo, for which he wrote the screenplay as well as its mm-hmm. sequel, which I had no idea. Those live-action Scooby-Doos. Which I've never seen. I've, I've never, never seen them either. It almost made me want to watch I it. I hear they're great. I hear they're great. Yeah, I guess I got to watch those. His directorial debut was on the horror comedy that Jake already mentioned, Slither, in 2006. And it should be noted that in 2008, he created a comedy TV series for Xbox Live called Sparky and Michaela about a superhero duo consisting of a Wonder Woman knockoff and a raccoon with special powers. He's always had this weird raccoon thing going for him, this talking raccoon thing. Um, He also wrote and directed the dark comedy Super, starring Rain Wilson and Elliot Page, uh, that was also dealing in superhero stuff. It was more of a dark, it was more of like a kick-ass style superhero story. It was like more true to kick-ass than the actual kick-ass movie was. Yeah. Because. Yeah, that's what it seems. It does an amazing job, like, of capturing, like, just the psychosexual darkness that is inherent in being a superhero fan. When all is said and done. Uh, our main character is like just desperately lonely and angry and delusional. The violence is, you know, he are, you know, Rain Wilson is like breaking people's skulls open with a pipe wrench and it is not like empowering or sexy at all. Yeah. Uh, they He does these great things where he adds like 1960s Batman, like pow splat over like scenes of unspeakable violence uh, it's a fantastic movie. I need to watch Obviously, it. not a date movie. Yeah. Like it, it really does speak to like the chasm of uh, horror and anger and sadness at the heart of a Generation X white male. But like, if you're down with that, it is a great movie, <laughs> and I was down with it. So going back, now Gunn is hired by Marvel to uh, work on Guardians of the Galaxy, and he goes about completely rewriting Perlman's script. However, he did say. She definitely got the ball rolling. The original concept was there. That was sort of what's in the movie. And then there's the story and the characters. Those were pretty much recreated by me. Changes happened, such as the addition of the Walkman, the character Yondu being added, and Peter's relationship with him being like this father figure situation. Thanos was supposed to actually be the main villain uh, of the original script, but that was changed to Ronan. I think that was more Marvel. Definitely Marvel now understands the importance of the addition of Thanos in the script. It was really Gunn having to figure out how to like 
put Thanos in the script, but not like undermine the main villain of that of the movie in the script, uh, Ronan. Mm-hmm. But and also like figure out how to find space for him in the screenplay and make him necessary, even though he at the end of the day is unnecessary for the script. James Gunn has actually gone on record in interviews talking about how it was very hard to balance all of that out to the point where one of the toughest scenes for him to like come to for him to like finalize in the first movie was the scene where Ronan meets Thanos and like Ronan gets to kill Thanos's little like. Uh, you know, mouth of Sauron guy. Yeah. Just to like prove that he's making an impact and that his movie is interacting with the universe. Right. But it also makes, it's also funny because like Thanos now after post Endgame and all of that is like a character who can like move and do and can see things and be places. But like in Guardians of the Galaxy, he's still sitting in the same yeah. chair on the same rock as if he hasn't moved since right. the end of the first Avengers movie. Right, right. Yeah. He's just it's... like, yep, still, still here. Yep. <laughs> At my mm-hmm. office, in my off weird floating stone <laughs> office chair. <laughs> so weird. Gunn also wrote in all those hit songs into his into his film. Gunn said I started the process by reading the Billboard charts for all the top hits of the 70s. I downloaded a few hundred songs and from that made an iTunes playlist of about 120 songs, which fit the movie tonally. I would listen to the playlist on my speakers around the house. Sometimes I would be inspired to create a scene around a song. And other times I had a scene that needed music and I would listen through the playlist, visualizing various songs, figuring out which would work the best. But it was definitely not something that happened like during the process. It was very, very, very uh, well conceived before they went into shooting, which I think is quite interesting. (laughs) Now it's time to get into the casting, the casting. Mm. There were a lot of big actors up for the role of Star-Lord, but of course, Chris Pratt ended up getting it. Gunn really actually didn't see him for the part until he auditioned, and he had to convince them he could get into shape for the film. This is actually like pre-ripped <sighs> Chris Pratt. This is when he was like actually extra out of he state. He was still Andy. Yep. He was still Andy, and he had just done another movie where he had to fatten Which, up. Which, by the way, he was in sh- he was in shape before Parks and Rec. Right. There's multiple headshots of him being fit as fuck. All right. right. I will I will say there was some movie he just made where he te- did have to actually fatten up for it. So he was extra mm. chubs when he came in. It was like, no, no, I promise, guys, I could do it. I'll lose it all. Uh, then you have Dave Bautista, who was up against Jason Momoa for the role of Drax. Oh. Uh, of course, uh, he ends up winning the role, but uh, it was kind of huge because Momoa was by far the bigger name at the time. It was actually James Gunn really knowing he was the right guy for the job. And so he actually pulled him in for a ton of auditions. Bautista was like super nervous. Uh, and J- it was James Gunn who was really championing him the whole time to get the role and had to keep bringing him back and keep proving him as the for the role of Drax until he finally got it. Uh, Gunn, it seems, already had Zoe Saldana in mind. I think I Actually, no, Amanda Seyfried was up for the part of Gamora and turned it down because she didn't want to have to get into all that makeup every day, mm-hmm. which I think is a bit of a silly reason to turn down a huge. You know, well, I mean, she probably didn't realize how big of a deal it was going to be. But still, after that, he contacted Zoe Saldana and asked her to take it on himself. Because obviously he was like, listen, we all you already have gone blue. Yeah. Now we need you green. Yeah, she was, of course, in Avatar. And so, yeah, she she likes playing the crazy color characters, I guess. Gunn based the character of Groot on his dog in the sense that he's the one true innocent of the group. He doesn't have 
have some fucked up, you know, he's just he's just sweet at the end of the day. And Vin Diesel has said that voicing the role was one of his greatest acting challenges. <laughs> Gunn said the ways in which Vin Diesel says, I am Groot, I am astounded. All of the I am Groots that were earlier voices didn't sound very good at all. Vin came in and in one day laid down all of these I am Groot tracks and he's a perfectionist. He made me explain to him with every I am Groot exactly what he was saying. It was amazing when we first put that voice in there, how much the character changed and how much he influenced the character. Uh... Then they uh, made great efforts, of course, to ensure Rocket didn't come off like this cartoon character. Gunn based elements of the character on himself. He, I think I'll have a quote later, that Rocket, he feels so connected to Rocket in such a huge way, to the point where he's saying that apparently Volume 3 will be like Rocket's movie. I mean, James Gunn has written um, semi-autobiographically about his hardships and his past, his uh, you know, obsessiveness with uh, collecting his uh, struggles with alcohol and drugs. He's talked about how uh, he's, you know, it's been a struggle for him to, uh, to maintain his sobriety. And, you know, he's proud of the progress he's made. So like this, this uh, damaged little woodland creature who <laughs> is just full of like snark, but just can't stop the, uh, the, the feelings from getting through. Very much is uh, it, it resonates on a way that is just besides like, oi, crikey, I might be a little fuzzball, but I sure do love guns proper. Yeah, that like the character could have been in uh, different hands. Yeah, it's so good. And Bradley Cooper does an amazing job of pulling off that balance between the humor, the heart the the fast talking speech patterns mm-hmm. and is so good for that role. And I don't even it, to the point where. I actually, I get that it's his voice, but in a way it's like not, I don't know. I don't like hear Bradley Cooper. I also don't hear Bradley Cooper. Which is really incredible because I've seen a lot of Bradley Cooper movies. And in most Bradley Cooper movies, he is extremely Bradley Cooper. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, exactly. He's one of those actors. So it is kind of incredible that he, he uh, pulls that voice off. He's less Bradley Cooper in those T-Mobile ads where he is explicitly (laughs) playing himself. (laughs) Uh, so shout outs also to Lee Pace uh, as Ronan the Accuser. I thought he was great. He's great. I think so, too. Michael Rooker as Yondu is incredible. And, Rooker and- has been following Gunn throughout his career. He's been in Super. He's been in Slither. He's been in all sorts of stuff with him. He's like his uh, good luck charm at this point. Yeah, yeah, he has a few good luck charm castings. Rob Zombie always does a voice in all of his movies. Is another kind of good luck charm thing that the James Gunn has going. He has a few of those actually, and that's really awesome. I love when there's loyalty shown to to actors like that. I literally didn't know Nebula was Karen Gillan. What? Yeah, that I is really, like I, I, the only thing to know about Nebula. I, I don't know. I just she I, obviously it's heavy makeup and everything. I just had no. I just completely didn't realize that was Karen Gillan. That's like kind of an amazing uh, transition there. At least at least in makeup. I mean, and in character, she's she's really different from a lot of the characters I've seen her play. Fucking Amy Pond. That. 
is Nebula. What are you going to do about it? And Benicio Del Toro as the collector, among many others in the cast, but he is fantastic <laughs> in that role as well. I just, I love Benicio Del Toro. So uh, Gunn had this to say about the specific aesthetics. The first thing that came to me with this movie was what the visual approach to it would be. I wrote a 20-page document before I was ever hired on exactly how the visuals of the Guardians of the Galaxy would be approached, how we'd look at creating a new type of space epic. That's really what the movie is today. Absolutely everybody has adhered to that original document. And I think one of the big splashy things that is now hard to see because of how many just MCU movies alone that has given outer space this treatment, but even just other films that have come out since how new and fresh the, the colorful vibrant space Mm -hmm. featured in guardians of the galaxy uh, was in comparison to everything else up to that time, like blade runner and alien were the precedent. Mm -hmm. Everything had to have this dark gritty 1993 super Mario bros movie vibe, this, this dirty, filthy kind of thing. And there was just like this breath of fresh air. There was this marriage of that dirty, filthy kind of thing with this like more vibrant, beautiful stuff. Well, it's the, it's the thing going full circle because what happened is what you're talking about is how, uh, you know, Star Trek gave way to this, like, Flash Gordon, well, Flash Gordon, and it was before that, but, like, Flash Gordon, OG Star Trek, just, like, prog rock album covers. Space was always groovy and colorful and, like, phantasmagoric mm-hmm. uh, up until movies like Alien kind of, like, made dirty space more, or uh, or 2001 a Space Odyssey. Mm. You had dirty space and clean yep. space, and colorful fantasy space had kind of been thrown out the window, but Gunn, a fucking Gen Xer, a son of the 70s, like completely uh, like wanted to bring it back because in his mind dreamscape, space is full of like fun floating cities and multicolored aliens and fun like laser blasts and explosions and fireworks coming from every direction. So like, again, it's the... As a, a, it really is a wonderful thing that like his childhood obsessions came together with these forgotten characters, with this soundtrack, all kind of communicating and translating the spirit of this era. You know, I I, I don't even want to get into like the full psychometry of the seventies, but you know, uh, Watergate, the gas crisis, post Vietnam malaise, like. People, you know, had a chip on their shoulder. People were just kind of looking out for number one. And that sense of the promise of the 60s was dead and gone. And they had to, like, find a family and find a path on their own in many ways. And that, again, I'm I'm going hyper Jungian here. But it all is kind of captured in the emotional beats and in the, like, meta themes of the Guardians movies in a way that, like, couldn't have been intentional. It's just people making shit they wanted to see, and that's a reflection of their innate desires and experiences. Yeah, Gunn said, the whole time I was designing the film, I thought how bored I am with most movies today. Most people go to the theaters to see a spectacle, and there are just a few that are done with true heart and passion. There are very few that step out of the box and do something different and unique. And it's so funny to think of Guardians as different and unique now. I'm I'm just going to say that's weird because Ant-Man Quantumania hadn't even come out for another 10 years. How did he know? 
Exactly. <laughs> how did he know how boring and muddy and re- <laughs> and uh, repetitive these m- movies would get? <laughs> uh, while filming, by the way, Groot and Rocket hadn't been cast yet. Gunn said, my brother, Sean Gunn, who plays Kraglin in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Yondu's like, right-hand man, played Rocket on set. And any of the other guys will say he's an extremely important part of the on-set team. Not only that, we used a lot of his face for reference when we see stuff for Rocket. When we see Rocket rolling his eyes and pulling at his eyes in despair uh, in despair ears in despair probably was that's entirely sean gunn's face uh rocket is really an amalgamation of many people uh gunn also describes the pacing of the film to be like nirvana songs there's sometimes it's just these very long drawn out like wide shots which was again very unique for the time like there's all these scenes in the movie there's a scene with him in the prison there's a scene with them in the spaceship uh, several scenes of the spaceship where it's like you just see all of them in a room there's no cuts and they just play out this hilarious fucking dialogue <laughs> and it's so much better that way and then and then jump to these really frenetic really like fast paced, wild action scenes as well. And that mix, he says he likened it to like an album of Nirvana songs, essentially like you've got your something in the way. And then you got your like, uh, uh, Oh, what's another fucking, well, whatever, you know, smells like teen spirit or something like that, where it's just like crazy and wild. Also, uh, for all the CGI, of which there are 2,750 visual effects shots, they tried to get as much practical stuff in there as possible, including a lot of huge sets instead of green screen. And I think that also really helped out a lot, especially because there is a lot of CG in there, obviously, that, you know, that prison set is huge and real. Mm -hmm. And that goes a long way to, to make the film fantastic. Um, anything else you want to say about the making of the first Guardians? I just have like the release info and stuff and moving into volume two. Nah, nah. I think we said a lot. It's fucking awesome, man. It comes out in 2014. It becomes the third highest grossing film in the MCU. Obviously, no one had pre- would, was going to be able to predict how successful it's going to be. And it did all the things we said before. Just all how it, it changed the MCU movies in general, definitely superhero movies. In so many ways, at times to the point where now I'm like, okay, we need a new Guardians <laughs> to happen because we're stuck in these tropes now, and and I, and it's hard to get out of them. And I think it saved the comedy wing of of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because Age of Ultron kind of killed mm-hmm. the comedy approach up to that point and the kind of more Joss Whedon approach. Uh, in terms of the quippiness and everything, and it was like, here's something new that also feels like it can exist in an, in a in a Marvel Cinematic Universe and be a breath of fresh air comedically. So we're not ro- rolling our eyes and what. Yeah, now that you mention it, like, was this like Thor: The Dark World? Were we like, where was our faith wavering in the Marvel? Uh, I think so. Marvel movies in order. Just I just need to see where where we were on the timeline. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this was this was a big like refresh point. Oh for, yeah, for wow. Him. Yeah. It was uh Yeah, the okay, Original Avengers 2012, massive send-off to phase 1. Then in phase 2, we had Iron Man 3, mm-hmm. which uh is a fun Shane Black movie, but you know, not a lot of people's favorites. Thor the Dark World, uh Winter Soldier, which is incredible. Yeah. But not a laugh riot kind of like funny little goof em up. And then uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which 
boom, spiked back up. Age of Ultron, spiked back bottom. And then Ant-Man, kind of a middle, back to like a mid-range. Yep. Okay. And then we kind of right. drive into when they hit their apex with Infinity War and all that good stuff, you know? And they mm-hmm. just, when it became like the biggest thing ever. Spider-Man Homecoming, Guardians yeah. 2, Ragnarok, Black Panther, Boom. then Infinity Boom. War. Yeah, like. Crazy good. Billion, billion, billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Volume 2. Let's talk about it. James Gunn gets the band back together for a sequel via the MCU's request. The original cast returns along with Palm Clementiff. Uh, I hope, I probably said that wrong but still she's so good in the role of mantis uh so good uh you also have sylvester stallone as stakar ogord and kurt russell as ego peter quill's father palm started out in the french independent film world until she got cast in spike lee's remake of old boy which got her into the world of hollywood however she still had very limited credits yeah because she got her start in spike lee's old boy yeah yeah gun said she came in and she nailed it just completely completely nailed the role in a way that honestly nobody else has ever done for this movie on either this or guardians one and that's pretty incredible like literally had the just best most perfect audition you could possibly have that's how she got the role and it is shines forth she is so good in that character to the point where i don't think she'd be as written in to the guardians storylines since if it wasn't for how strong her performance has been like she carries like that entire holiday special. yeah like the whole holiday special is is hers pretty much she's amazing in it and and by the way that holiday special is phenomenal so yeah. if you want to wait till christmas if you hadn't seen it yet go for it but we watched it a couple weeks ago during our Sunday study session. Check us out. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. 50 bucks a month. You can join us on Discord. Uh, she is so good in that already very good thing. And so, uh, yeah, I, I love the addition of her to the to the gr- group. Adam Warlock was uh, supposed to be in the film, actually, Jake. Uh, he was scrapped. Uh, I mean, he, he's he's sh- I mean, he's shown in the end end credits in his famous stupid cocoon. <laughs> uh, two big conflicts in the film deal with family, Peter and his father, as well as the sister dynamic between Nebula and Gamora. Gunn said the first film is about becoming a family. The second film is about being a family. <laughs> you rewatched it recently. Jake, I wish I had had time this week. Uh, I did watch it in the theater initially. I remember having a similar reaction of the people being like, ah, not as good as the first. I didn't dislike it, but I definitely felt like, oh, it's a bit of a, felt like a little bit of a step down, even though Kurt Russell's amazing, of course, and the cast is great as always. But uh, what, what, how did you feel? You said you felt a little better about it on a second viewing. I did feel better about it watching it again for this uh, for this episode. Um, one of the things that is a knock against it is that there is one too many, hey, remember this from the first movie? Uh-huh. We're doing it again, gags. Yeah, that's... Which really, I remember they the always the fall shit flat. out of that. I remember the shit out of that. Be like, oh, no, we, we need new. We need new. Yeah. Yeah. Which the reason why those original jokes were so popular is because they came out of left field. They were, like, surprising and they got a big laugh because it was something you didn't expect. But if it, yeah, it just did. Those moments don't work. But the emotional beats between the characters hit um, the special effects and the musical stings are pretty good. Um, I feel like uh, Rocket's, uh, you know, emotional journey with Yondu is incredibly good. Um, And the just even though Ego is uh, a weird character, 
it kind of, you know, any parent or any child of narcissistic parents who like really just who have that like gut wrenching moment where you realize that like the person that you were hoping would love you unconditionally just wants like their own needs met more than yours is like it's it, it resonates. It resonates. Big bombastic action. It uh, the jokes that do land, especially the dynamic between Drax and Mantis. Incredible, incredible, endlessly watchable. Like you said, she like saves most of the movie. Um, and Baby Groot, don't I don't like Baby Groot. Yeah, it's a little too Funko Poppy and cute and over over. Like the top. if they were gonna make Baby Groot a thing, like just have, have keep him in the pot and then just bring him back in the next one or something. Even but like, even like the moment that happens in the end of the first movie when I was watching it, I was like, what am I watching a fucking Illumination film all of a sudden? <laughs> like with Drax sharpening his blades and him dancing and then Drax sees him. So I was like, what is that? What am I doing? Is this I fucking cried. minions all of a sudden? I, I am a middle-aged man, Holden. I am an adult. <laughs> I pay my bills. I have employment. I have insurance. Like I'm an, I am so past the stage where I should be crying at animated tree men. But at the end of fucking guardians one, that we are groomed. It's great. Tears. Was it also, wait, wait, was it also Vin Diesel who does Superman and iron giant? It was a very similar as you go. I stay. <laughs> Isn't that also Vin Diesel? Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I just, Gave, re- figured out the one-to-one on that. Yeah, if and it, Vin Diesel is a big idiot sacrificing yeah, themselves, you're gonna cry. You're gonna cry, and it's totally earned, and I love that. I, I'm only kind of criticizing the dance, but even the dance moment, I was just like, alright, fine, give me Dancing Baby. I can't believe you're literally doing Dancing Baby in 2014. <laughs> uh, I, I should say, I should say, I did watch the movie at 1.5 speed because I was running out of time this morning. So maybe that fixed some pacing issues that I That's didn't. That too. <laughs> it did feel like it dragged a little bit too, which is not something you expect from a Guardians movie. That said though, I think it's not, I think it's solid for sure. And I'm mm-hmm. really looking forward to volume three. I mean, it earned $800 million globally. So uh, it did something right. Uh, in between those things though, I will just mention the Guardians go on to become major additions to the biggest movies in MCU history with Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. James Gunn, though he hands his creations over to the Russo brothers, he does have involvement in the script writing, at least the first one, and had a direct communication with the brothers as well. And they are handled really well. I, they do, they feel exactly like those characters from Gunn's films, mm-hmm. for sure. Which I And in fact, some of their funniest moments are in Infinity War. Like, oh, yeah. So because good. they're like, they're literally from a different, like... yeah. It's it's the first time that it feels like a real movie crossover yes. and not just characters from different movies in the same movie. Yeah, they really maintain their integrity from what they were in the other films and and it and that is amazing. And now we got to talk about uh the cancellation of James Gunn in 2018 amid the Me Too movement online. James Gunn is fired by Disney from making the third Guardians film after a right-wing media personality exposes tweets he sent out in 2009 and 2010 with offensive content. The shithead alt-right fucker that did this is most known for his promotion of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which is one of the dumbest fucking most untrue conspiracy mm-hmm. theories of all time. And this was all such a fiasco. And this really was when like the darker side of the Me Too movement started to rear its ugly head. And it was one of the first times I went, oh, fuck that. He shouldn't be canceled for that. That's fucking bullshit. 
James Gunn both apologized for his past jokes and he accepted the L. Gunn said it was unbelievable. And for a day, it seemed like everything was gone. Everything was gone. I was going to have to sell my house. I was never going to be able to work again. That's what it felt like. Not only that, but these were tweets that like Disney was aware of that yeah. he talked about. Oh, it, so like, he's with the guy them. who made Tremio and Juliet. Like, go fuck yourself. He's the guy. Yeah. To, and, and also, you know, I mean, it's the whole thing. It's like, we, we, you know, in my opinion, it's just like everyone just has to be perfect now for their entire life and never no. make a mistake that, you know, at all. To, and, I mean, or you're fired. I'm sure you have it in your notes, but like the story really was is that it was such a PR crisis out of left field because the right wing machine is so just in lockstep to just like immediately get their story straight and push for an outrage machine. <clears throat> Bud Light, Bud Light. And so the, what you do is just like, it just immediately jumps like uh, Kevin Feige all the way up to the head of Disney. And they're like, well, shut it down, get rid of them. Like we can't have this. And out of context, you do have just like weird little text boxes with your director's like picture and name next to it saying stuff about how funny it is to like do stuff to kids. Yeah. It's so dumb. I, I just hated every moment of that and just felt it was, so, but amazing shit came out of it. So in a way I can't even hate it. Cause this allowed him to move over to DC to direct probably my favorite James Gunn movie, Suicide Squad. I think that movie is so good. And, of course, also Peacemaker on uh, on uh, TV for HBO Max or whatever. And uh, he ended up being the first ever director to make an MCU and DCU film, which is so funny because, like, every we, uh, how many times have we talked about editors, writers, inkers, mm-hmm. pencilers, just literally walking across the street <laughs> from Marvel to DC to, like, continue to work and, and vice versa. And, it, and he's actually the first one to do it in movies, which is really, really fascinating just to me. Just the absolute hilarity of, like... Yeah, just getting all of that done within, like, I'm going to say the 48 hours or how many, like... He is accepted back by Disney, like, the day after he's offered Suicide Squad. (laughs) Because this is what happens... He he. Disney asked him back to do Mar- a Guardians Volume Three. Uh, the reinstatement at Marvel came after a ton of fan outreach to Disney, as well as a collective statement from Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Bautista, Bradley Cooper, Vin Diesel, Sean Gunn, Palm Clementiff, uh, Michael Rooker, and Karen Gillan. Uh, this, along with Gunn's level-headed response to the situation, led Disney to offering Gunn his job back on Guardians Volume Three. And that was just again one day after he signed on to do Suicide Squad. So, uh, and now, of course, because he did Suicide Squad, now he get, gets to put out Volume 3 and seal off his contribution to the MCU and Guardians of the Galaxy within it and now t- literally take over fully DCU, the reins. And, and I mean, yeah. You, the, the cast of Guardians was like within, again, within, all this was happening so fast. Like, oh, if you get rid of James. We're not doing this movie. Yeah. Like, like you're not getting another guard. All these people were like, I'm not com-. like Bautista. I think was one of the people like, I'm not gonna, if it's not his work, if it's not, I just, we're not doing it. So yeah, I, I'm so happy this happened to just, God, just I love Dave Bautista. I know I love he's him awesome. So much. J- j- and also just, I'm so glad cause this set a precedent of like, Oh, right. You can, you know, if, if you had a dumb tweet in 2009 and a fuck face, all right, shithead, mm 
posts about it online and, and drills Trump's up. We, we can like have nuance in canceling and we don't just yeah, it was, outright cancel people just because an uncomfortable media situation happens. Also, the idea that like, oh, you're going to fire, uh, I forget which horrendous news anchor like had a secret lock a woman in my office button on his desk. Yeah. Like, oh, you're going to fire that guy for being an actual monster? Well, two can play that game. Like, right. what, what are you even fighting against? Right. What are you even fucking doing? So ridiculous. So uh, I love what he has to say here about making volume three and how important it was for him to come back and do it. One of the reasons why I came back to make this movie was because I felt like I needed to tell Rocket's story. I would have been very sad not to complete the trilogy for many reasons, but I just feel very connected to Rocket. I feel like nobody would be able to tell his story if it wasn't me. To me, Rocket has always been the secret protagonist of the Guardians movies. From the beginning, it has been rooted in who he is as a character. I think he exemplifies a lot of the traits of all the Guardians. They've uh, had all these traumas and it brings them together. I just think that his is more extreme than others. Gamora will also return as an alternate timeline version of herself if you're familiar with the events of uh, Endgame and all that. Adam Warlock will also finally be included in the film franchise, much to Jake's chagrin. And Gunn has stated this film was, quote, the hardest thing I've ever done. And he was hell-bent on breaking the trilogy curse, saying you can count on one hand the number of third films in the trilogy that were actually good. I am hyped for this movie. That trailer is awesome. It comes out April of 2023. I think it will already be out maybe when this episode comes out. But If I, we did our timing right, it'll be out by the time this comes out. I, I, I'm worried. Really really I'm worried. hope it's great. You are because I I was worried until I saw that trailer and reading some of these things about how Gunn feels about this movie and everything. I'm, I have a feeling. I don't know. I have a good feeling. But it is the curse of Wisbrew. Best laid plans of Mice and Men. Like Godfather 3. and Trees. Return of the Jedi. Like it's just. Mm. Yeah. I mean obviously Avatar 3. The Way of Fire will be a masterpiece unlike anything cinema has ever experienced. But that's a that's its own separate thing outside of traditional Hollywood. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. Fingers are crossed. Fingers are crossed, but I'm mm. It's there's a lot on the line. Well, all right, there you have it. Our episode on Guardians. I had a blast with this one. What a just what a fucking crazy This is one of those things that should not exist. Somehow mm-hmm. miraculously it did. And I I am looking forward to the new movie and um yeah, I don't know. I guess uh I guess we'll see. Thanks again. Uh, if you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You get for $5 a month weekly bonus episodes for uh, an ad-free episodes as well in the main feed for $15 a month. You can join us on Discord for our Sunday study session every Sunday where we cover the topic uh, that we're researching that week. Uh, like I said, we watched that holiday special. It was awesome. Among other things, uh, catch me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Again, that's twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Uh, I stream Monday through Friday. Jake! Follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young, Instagram at Best Jake Young. And hey, I also do a fun little streamy thing. Uh, my VTuber avatar, Puppet Jared, hosts a weekly cartoon watch along stream. We call it the Thursday Cartoon Dumpster, where we just watch the most bizarre, forgotten animated oddities of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and we just razz on them real good. Uh, if you watched our 420 celebration stream, that is, uh, things got a little crazier than usual, but it is, if you like this podcast, I'm just going to say it. 
you'll probably like the stream. Come on over, say hi. Tell him Jake badgered you. <laughs> say you got badgered into watching in chat. Yep, and bring a badger and get a free beer <laughs> on Badger Night. Wait a minute. That's a tanuki. <laughs> that is the famous raccoon dog of the Orient. <laughs> and hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.